From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As the war in Ukraine escalates, so does the U.S. war on information, truth, and facts. We speak to journalist John Jeter for our April episode of On the Media. Now we're looking at an almost total blackout of news that can be useful to our democratic decision-making. It's, a, it's really a, a historic moment, unfortunately not a good one. And police accountability activists sound the alarm as needed reforms fought for after the murder of George Floyd are scuttled by local officials. To be able to at least allow us to provide some written testimony and oral testimonies to share our concerns about the exclusion of the community advocates in this process because we just know that police cannot continue to police themselves. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, as President Biden announced this week, another $1.3 billion in military and economic aid to Ukraine, politicians and corporate media are seeking to escalate the military conflict rather than to find a political negotiation. Senator Chris Coons of Delaware made headlines this week speaking on Face the Nation when he implied that Joe Biden should consider sending U.S. troops to Ukraine. I think the history of the 21st century turns on how fiercely Mm -hmm. we defend freedom in Ukraine and that Putin will only stop when we stop him. But while Biden authorized even more weapons to Ukraine this week, he stuck to his position of not sending troops. Meanwhile, a new expose in the gray zone details how, contrary to the heroic image of the Ukrainian president in Western media, Volodymyr Zelensky is actually overseeing a campaign of assassination, kidnapping, and torture of political opposition. The report, co-authored by Max Blumenthal and Esha Krishnaswamy, says that several mayors and other Ukrainian officials have been killed since the outbreak of war many reportedly by Ukrainian state agents after engaging in de-escalation talks with Russia. The article adds that, quote, Zelensky has further exploited the atmosphere of war to outlaw an array of opposition parties and order the arrest of his leading rivals. His authoritarian decrees have triggered the disappearance, torture, and even murder of an array of human rights activists, communist and leftist organizers, journalists, and government officials accused of quote-unquote pro-Russian sympathies. One left activist, beaten and persecuted by Ukraine's security services, is quoted in this Gray Zone article saying, quote, the war is being used to kidnap, imprison, and even kill opposition members who express themselves critical of the government. We must all fear for our freedom and for our lives, end quote. Related, friends, family, and colleagues of Chilean-American journalist Gonzalo Lira are reporting him missing from the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv. After the February 24th invasion, Lira recorded a series of videos and interviews critical of the Zelensky government and he pinned a tweet listing journalists that he said were victims of the Zelensky regime and wrote, quote, 
If you haven't heard from me in 12 hours or more, put my name on this list, end quote. Lyra was also the subject of a rather derogatory profile of him in the Daily Beast. And former UK parliamentarian and talk show host George Galloway announced that Lyra had missed his scheduled appearance on his show on Sunday, April 17th. In Mariupol, Ukraine, Russia has declared victory, opting not to bomb or otherwise rout the Ukrainian Azov battalion neo-Nazi forces hold up underground inside a massive steel factory there. And meanwhile, in the U.S., the funeral for Patrick Leolia is planned for Friday, April 22nd. Leolia was shot in the back of the head by a Grand Rapids, Michigan police officer who has not been officially named. At a press conference in Grand Rapids this week, attorney Robin McCoy, with translation assistance for Leolia's Congolese parents, called the continued police killings a genocide. We are traumatized by this. Our hearts go out to the family of Patrick Luelo. And this is upsetting. I mean, we're constantly seeing genocide by cop for black people, the brutalization of black men, women, and children. African-Americans, black and brown people, we're not safe. We're not safe in the streets, in the car. Patrick was was driving his car. Like attorney Crump and attorney Johnson said, he, he was not committing a crime. Merely having an issue with his tags on his car and your failure. Your failure to go get the tags on your car should not result in your death. Also, the Justice Department announced this week that there is reasonable cause to believe that conditions and practices at the Mississippi State Penitentiary, also known as Parchman, violate the Eighth and Fourteenth Amendments to the Constitution. Specifically, the department concluded that there is reasonable cause to believe Mississippi routinely violates the rights of people incarcerated at Parchman by failing to provide adequate mental health treatment, suicide prevention measures, subjecting people to prolonged isolation and solitary confinement, and failing to protect incarcerated people from violence. In addition to findings of the investigation, Mississippi was provided with remedial measures necessary to address the issues. And finally, in culture and media, a UK judge ordered this week that WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange should be extradited to the US to face espionage charges and a potential 170 years in prison for revealing US war crimes. British Home Secretary Priti Patel now has four weeks to decide whether to send Assange to the US. According to Consortium News, Assange's legal team can appeal to Patel during the next four weeks. After her decision is made, Assange can then make a renewed appeal to the high court if she opts to send him to the U.S. On the issue of critical race theory, Florida has banned several math textbooks claiming that they include material associated with so-called critical race theory, but no examples of the books or specific passages or math problems were provided as a supposed rationale for banning the books. 
And finally, the 124th birthday of activist and artist Paul Robeson was celebrated this month in D.C. at a massive street sculpture titled Here I Stand, created by sculptor Yuziki Nelson. The April 9th program included speeches, including by We Act Radio founder Kimon Freeman, who connected the legacy of Robeson to today's current events. When I say humble, y'all say legend. Humble. Legend. Humble. Legend. I want to shout this man out because he, he said in um, one of these, the footage that I've seen up here, uh, Humanity's Truck, shout out to the Humanity's Truck for being a part of this. He said that he didn't know anything about Paul Robinson until he was in his 30s. Well, I didn't know anything about Paul Robinson until I was in my 20s, so I think we're making a little bit of progress. <laughs> so let's make sure that our children don't grow up without knowing about Paul Robinson. Can we do that? Can we do that? My name is Kimo Freeman, Angry Black Man in Therapy, co-founder of We Act Radio. Our motto is do something. So when I say we act radio, y'all say do something. We act radio. I want to thank this man, the humble legend, for him and his do somethingness, Because we have a monument to Martin Luther King. But um, the monument to Martin Luther King had his words on it. And the words were too strong to the people that paid for that monument. So what did they do? They censored Martin Luther King's own quote on his own statue. And you know why they could do that? Because it wasn't ours. It didn't belong to us. Yuzika made, made a lot of noise that um, there was not an African that did that statue of Martin Luther King. So this is monuments that belong to us. This belongs to us. And in doing that, I got to make sure I invoke the spirit of Paul Robeson because Paul Robeson said, in Russia was the first time I ever felt like a man. In Russia was the first time I ever felt like a man. So I want to put that out here for all these folks flying these Ukraine flags. And I want to make sure y'all understand that But when they say we have the world against Russia, no, you don't. So let's make sure we understand that. Now, those atrocities that's been happening in Ukraine, uh, I'm sorry for you. But welcome to the club. Yemen, Afghanistan, Iraq, Palestine, Libya, I can't go on. And if Putin is a, and if Putin and Congo, if Putin is a war criminal, then George Bush is a war criminal. If Putin is a war criminal, then Barack Obama is a war criminal. If Putin is a criminal, then we have to shut out all the crimes against humanity. I think that was something Paul Robeson would approve of because this was a man that had the vitriol of the United States government against him, took his passport, wouldn't allow him to leave the country, prevented him from performing his craft around the world or within these United States, and tried to silence him and kill his entire career. So here I stand is a monument to resistance. Here I stand is a monument to truth-telling. Here I stand is a monument to gatekeepers of the truth, not the gatekeepers of lies, the gatekeepers of truth. The humble legends live on. And all of these elders right here and the sacrifices they made and the work they done was not in vain because there's a small ball that's rolling down a hill and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the day will soon come when all of these things too shall pass. We act radio. We act radio. I want to thank each and every one of y'all for recognizing the value and the validity of this man's work and all the elders that are here today. I say, Ashe. Ashe. Big. Was that black enough for you? Okay. More on culture and media later in the show. 
And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. I met my brother the other day, I gave him my right hand, and just as soon as ever my back was turned, he scandalized my name. Now do you call that a brother? No, no. You call that a brother? No, no. Call that a brother? My sister the other day I gave her my right hand And just as soon as ever my back was turned She too scandalized my name Now do you call that a sister? No, no You call that a sister? No, no Call that a sister? No, no Well, just in the last two months, Amir Locke being shot to death by police in Minneapolis after a no-knock raid, and Patrick Leolia being shot in the back of the head after a traffic stop in Grand Rapids, Michigan, is proof to many activists that implementation of meaningful police reforms have failed after the worldwide uprising against racism following the murder of George Floyd two years ago. Here in Maryland, the Maryland Police Accountability Act of 2021 repealed the controversial Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights and replaced it with a new disciplinary framework. Additionally, the act requires that each jurisdiction establish a police accountability board, administrative charging committee, and trial board. And those jurisdictions include the suburb of Washington, D.C., Prince George's County. Here to discuss serious concerns that activists have in the county about how the process has been implemented so far is Beverly John, coordinator of the Prince George's County Coalition for Police Accountability. Welcome to On the Ground, Beverly. Thank you. Thank you, Esther, for having me. Well, I know that I've been in touch with uh, the coalition in the past uh, about not only the serious uh, violence from police in Prince George's County, but about the same issue of how these reforms could take place and be meaningful. Tell us what's happened so far since this legislation was passed and the concerns you have about how it's being implemented or not implemented in the county. Sure. So since the um, bill passed last April, each county was mandated to create this police accountability board structure. And the legislation gives a deadline of July 1, I believe, of this year. Several other counties have gone through the process of having town hall forums to educate and bring awareness to, you know, what this actually means for the public safety of, you know, our communities. They've gone through a lot of uh, iterations of draft legislation where, you know, their county councils have been able to, you know, discuss and vet and hold public hearings about the legislation. Unfortunately, the first component and the most, I think, 
important component of this implementation is the selection, the recruitment and the selection of the people that will sit on the first top level of the um, process, which is the police accountability boards. Prince George's County, I believe, set up a work group made up of mostly law enforcement and local county government staffers to be able to help with, first of all, recruiting membership to the PAB boards and then drafting the legislation around it. So that all of that basically excludes the community voice in the process, because once the legislation is drafted and once the membership has been recruited and selected by the county council, the next and only other step that we see is that it will be presented to our county council for a vote. So at this point in time, we're looking for our county council to address the issues and we believe it will be done during their meeting next Tuesday, April the 26th, to be able to at least allow us to provide some written testimony and oral testimonies to share our concerns about the exclusion of the community advocates in this process because we we just know that police cannot continue to police themselves. So there's a lot of manipulating and maneuvering going on that, again, there's really just been no community involvement or community input into the process. Okay, definitely not input from the people who have been raising the issue. Yes. Definitely no input from the activists who have been bringing the issue of police violence to the public. Correct. When I looked at the summary that the ACLU put out, it talked about a few counties. It gave examples of a few counties where activists are really having issues and raising issues around how this legislation is not being implemented. Uh, For example, also in Anne Arundel County, uh, the ACLU says that the county administration used this legislation as an excuse to throw out all of the community-centered provisions of the draft civilian review board legislation. And instead they, and this is a quote, they met with the police departments and offices of law and wrote a weak PAB bill. The administration says they engaged the community, but all they did was meet with advocates to tell them what they plan to do. <laughs> yes. So yeah. um, this is obviously a problem, um, you know, because we know, you know, from Freddie Gray mm-hmm. to all the cases in Prince George's County to I'm thinking of the young man killed on the Eastern Shore um, yeah. who has the legislation named after him. Anton Black, yeah. Anton Black, you know, um, from so all these cases, you know, it's definitely a problem in Maryland and to have the legislation that people fought for so hard, even though it was weakened, you know, it was counted as a victory, you know, to at least have that yes. and to have people on the local level be ignored and to have the legislation basically destroyed locally is just not acceptable. So what uh, would you like people to know in terms of the 24th? What would you like them to know in terms of coming out, where to go, or how to be in touch with you all to keep, uh, to follow up this issue? Because I know people are concerned. Yes. So um, we believe that there will be a hearing on the bills by our county council 
and it should be on Tuesday, the April the 26th at 1130. All of the county council meetings are held virtually. So um, we would just like to have as many eyes as possible. In addition to, you know, um, most of us will be trying to submit oral testimony as well as written comments to, um, you know, express our concerns. The website link that you should go to to view the county meetings is P as in Paul, G as in George, C Council, PGC Council dot US forward slash 303 forward slash county hyphen council hyphen video. Uh, if people don't get all that, if they go to pgcouncil.us, they may see an additional tab to click for the video. I yes, guess, that's correct. And then if people want to get in touch with you directly, uh, how do they do that? Yes, you can send an email to bjohn, B-J-O-H-N, projects at gmail.com. And we also have a Twitter feed at pg for police accountability on Twitter. Okay. All right. Well, I want to thank my guest, Beverly John. She's a coordinator with the Prince George's County Coalition for Police Accountability. Thank you, Beverly. Thank you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Rivera, and it's our fourth show of April 2022, so time for On the Media. And in the four weeks since our last extended look at culture and media, there has been an even harsher censorship and banning of journalism, independent voices, and anyone with information or analysis that is counter to the U.S., NATO, or corporate media narrative, especially regarding the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Add to this censorship this week's decision by a U.K. judge that WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange should be extradited to the U.S. to face espionage charges for revealing U.S. war crimes. And so it's obvious that in the U.S. and in various U.S. vassal states, there is an ongoing war for information and truth. For more on these stories, I'm joined by our media critic, John Jeter, former Foreign Bureau Chief for the Washington Post, two-time Pulitzer finalist, and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks for having me again, Esther. 
Well, maybe a good place to start is referencing our last segment in March, in which we were joined by Ben Norton, editor-in-chief of Multipolarista. And we all discussed the roots of the current crisis in Ukraine, starting in 2014 with the violent U.S.-backed coup of the democratically elected leader. And I think I have a little clip that I want to play. These big tech corporations are linked to Western governments and militaries. And it's not surprising to me that now on Ukraine, they are spreading nonstop propaganda on these corporate media platforms and these social media platforms that all act as stenographers for the U.S. government. So that was Ben talking last month. But since then, Ben has been targeted by the New York Times, which calls the coup a conspiracy theory promoted by Russia and China. So it seems this Ukraine crisis is really taking us deep into the denial of history and fact, which the New York Times, the so-called paper of record, wants to call a conspiracy theory. So let's get started with your take on that. Yeah, well, it's uh, (laughs) I guess in today's context, uh, history is a conspiracy theory. Uh, You know, I think Ben Norton should be very proud that he has earned this attack from the New York Times that suggests that he is saying something that is dangerous to the powers that be and almost certainly truthful. You know, the New York Times, I think, is just, it jumped a shark a long time ago and it's pandering at this point. It's near abdication of its responsibility as journalists and transformation into puppeteers for the American empire is really very shameful. I would be embarrassed to work there now. And what the New York Times is doing to him is very similar to what the United States government is doing to Julian Assange, right? This scapegoating, this demonizing him for telling the American people the truth about the United States war crimes and its kleptocracy. I guess similar or related, every week I also do another podcast, The Socialist Program, and Brian Becker, the activist, journalist, who who also has appeared on this show several times, read these new community standards from YouTube. And it was very similar to what's happening with the New York Times. This update is meant to clarify and in some cases expand our guidance as it relates to this conflict. This pause includes, but it's not limited to, claims that imply victims are responsible for their own tragedy or similar instances of victim blaming, such as claims that Ukraine is committing genocide or deliberately attacking its own citizens. In other words, the new rules included the fact that you could not on YouTube's platform uh, belittle the war in Ukraine or claim that Ukraine had once targeted its own people. So not only would it consider the mentioning of 2014 grounds to be deplatformed, but I'm thinking of my recent interview on this show with journalist Joe Loria of Consortium News, and he was applying a reporter's skepticism about the dominant narrative about Bucha and how the corporate media immediately went to parrot the claims of Ukraine and Zelensky that this was a massacre committed by Russia and ignoring all the evidence, some of it recorded, some of it on video, that the the Azov battalion intended to go into Bucha after the Russians had left and do what they called a cleansing operation of all the people who they felt 
had collaborated with Russia, who weren't, who were sympathetic to Russia, who had lived in peace with Russia during this occupation. And they were going to cleanse the area of so-called collaborators. So despite this evidence and despite other types of video evidence, uh, the lack of any type of forensic investigation, you know, this is a seasoned journalist making objective inquiries, right? So that means that these new YouTube rules would also make illegal or outlaw that type of reporting. So, I mean, I know you've worked as a foreign correspondent, and I know that's not the same as being a war correspondent, but I mean, what can you tell us about bringing the correct information home from another country to the U.S. public? Well, you know, the, the thing that is really daunting, and I believe it is even more so than since I stopped being a, a foreign correspondent more than 15 years ago, it's not the reporting on the ground, although that is obviously challenging, even in a war situation. I, I you know, I covered some wars, but I, I will admit at a distance, right, I the late Ben Brown used to tell foreign correspondents, you're no good to us dead. So I, I took that to heart. But what you would find is that the real problem is when you bring your story back to your editors in Washington or New York or wherever it was you were reporting for, right? It's their skepticism that is often your biggest challenge. And I, I'm sure that what Joe Loria is, is um, uh, facing now with even YouTube is that same hostility towards his reporting, but it's been quadrupled now, I think, in its intensity. And the reason for that, I think, is is just the desperation. The truth presents multiple challenges for people who are in power, for very wealthy people. The idea that I don't know who is responsible for the massacres, if indeed they did occur. Certainly, clearly, there was some killing done in Bucha. Uh, clearly, there was some killing done. Whether or not the Russians did it or the Azov Battalion did it, I don't know. I will tell you this. If you look at the recent history, if you look at what happened in Syria, if you look at these false flag news stories that turn out to be false flags, uh, reports of Syria bombing and gassing their own people in a war that they were winning, right? Which makes no sense. Why would Russia massacre people in a war in which they are by all accounts, winning handily. Why would they do that? So it certainly makes no sense. And there is a very real chilling effect that's happening right now. Uh, it's been happening for 20 years. And now like the like the protagonist, and uh, I think it was Hemingway's, The Sun Also Rises, where someone asked the, the protagonist how he went broke. He says, gradually and then suddenly. That's kind of what's happening to journalism's abolition, right? It's been happening since, I think, the Iraqi war. And now we see it with Julian Assange, who is a reporter. The news tries to dismiss him as the founder of WikiLeaks. But no, he's a journalist. I could argue he might be the, at the time of his arrest, he was maybe the finest active journalist in the English language, right? He was reporting on United States criminal activity, violations of international criminal law in their their prosecution of the wars in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. So, you know, what Laurie is talking about really is this chilling effect writ large against the United States media, the fourth estate, which was already firing only on one cylinder. And now we're looking at an almost total blackout of news that can be useful to our democratic decision making. It's a it's really a, a historic moment. Unfortunately, not a good one. As we go to broadcast uh, this week, the war in Ukraine has reached the point of, uh, I guess, an end point in Mariupol. 
and the remaining fighters there, largely members of the Nazi Azov Battalion, have been holed up in a large steel factory there. And the Russians have given them two deadlines to surrender or they intend to destroy and bomb this facility. So another interesting thing about the distortion or censorship that's ongoing is the refusal of corporate media to really acknowledge that either these forces are Nazi forces integrated into the Ukrainian army or to basically lionize them and just say that, you know, these are the fierce fighters protecting Ukraine, basically, as opposed to highlighting their role committing the atrocities really in in eastern Ukraine over the last eight years. So as we discussed last last month with Ben, uh, the war didn't start in February. And most Americans believe that it did, but it, it started with the coup in 2014. And since that time, 14,000 ethnic Russians have been killed in eastern Ukraine. I want to play a clip that we played last week of one of these far right leaders in Ukraine speaking at on a panel back in February, where he really kind of gives an, an insight into the nature of the far right forces there. This is a clip of Ukrainian neo-Nazi leader Yevgeny Karas speaking on February 5th, 2022. We were now being given so much weaponry because we perform the tasks set by the West, because we are the only ones who are ready to do them, because we have fun. We have fun killing and we have fun fighting. Maidan was the victory of nationalist ideas. Nationalists were the key factor there and clearly at the front lines. Now, there's a lot of speculation saying, well, there were only a few neo-Nazis, LGBT and foreign embassies saying there were not many neo-Nazis in Maidan, maybe about 10% of the real ideological ones. Such a thing can only be said by a moron that was never at war and doesn't understand that those 10%, maybe even less, 8%, how much more their effectiveness was. It was endless. If not for those 8% of neo-Nazis, the effectiveness of Maidan would have dropped by 90%. So it's not the numbers that are the point. Like now some left-wingers like the Bull Foundation and so on are trying to count numbers and saying things like there were that many nationalists and they had this much influence, quote-unquote influence. If not for the nationalists, that whole thing would have turned into a gay parade. Basically, you know, you hear him talking about how they like to kill and how they've been so effective on the Maidan in 2014. And, you know, he says, if we weren't there, it would have turned into a gay parade. You know, in other words, no coup would have happened. So this is not the kind of coverage. These are This is not the kind of voice you're hearing on uh, mainstream media. Um, I can think of two broadcasts recently where uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the head of Ukraine, has been given basically the whole hour to give his version of events, history, and facts on the ground, a- including the vaunted, you know, uh, still respected by many people, 60 Minutes show on Sunday night, where you have so many people as a captive audience could because they think that 60 minutes is going to give them the truth. Uh, I don't listen to the mainstream news media as much as I did when this war began, but I still hear snippets here and there. What I find stunning is that I don't know if I've ever heard in the mainstream media, uh, Zelensky or anyone else mentioned or asked Zelensky about the Minsk agreements, 
the Minsk Accords, which uh, Russia uh, made every effort to abide by. Ukraine did not. I never hear any mention of Victoria Nuland and the role of the State Department in the 2014 coup, uh, selecting leaders, installing leaders of that movement who were avowed neo-Nazis, acolytes of the late World War II Nazi uh, right, right. Bandera. And they call themselves Banderistas. I mean, these, this is not, uh, yeah, Banderites, yeah. Or Banderites. Uh, yeah, this, I mean, this is not uh, speculation, right? This is, there is a very well-documented history that anyone can have access to if you've got an internet connection, right? And, and it's something else I think that's interesting that I wish the media would address. I think you will find academics who understand this history, some academics who understand this history, but I've not yet seen anyone in the media reporting this, which is that the United States has always had a very, let's say, ambivalent relationship with Nazis, dating back to, of course, uh, the first Nazis, uh, Hitler, the support for Hitler and the Nazis by Prescott Bush, the father and grandfather of two U.S. presidents, right? We, we know this. This is not speculation. There's always been a sort of ambivalence about the, especially the elites and the relationship to Nazis, right? There, there are many historians who believe that the only reason that the United States finally entered the war was because of the Japanese invasion of Pearl Harbor. But, but one of the reasons they resisted was because they were hoping the Nazis would defeat the communists, right? That that was kind of why they were holding back. They, they feared communists more than they feared uh, the Nazis. And so there's always been this, re- this weird relationship. And then you have, of course, the relationship to South Africa and the apartheid government, the nationalists in the apartheid government who formed the apartheid government were uh, clearly enamored with the Nazis who, of course, were in turn influenced heavily by the Jim Crow South and their state terror against black people. So these are questions that don't just go unanswered. They go unasked. And again, I think this is really contributing to our shriveling democracy, which is very uh, nearly disappeared at this moment in time. So I think it's really good to point out some reporting that is not falling into this kind of mainstream. And that is, you know, uh, a friend of the show, Lee Camp, uh, who was deplatformed, you know, taken off of art, you know, the RT was uh, banned here in the United States uh, and in uh, parts of Europe and, and I guess all of the EU. And then he was deplatformed from Spotify and, you know, he's doing, you know, he's bouncing back, you know, with a, a new platform on his own website and on patreon.com. But anyway, in a recent video that he put out, he played an interview with a French journalist who went to Ukraine, basically kind of spilled the beans on how the U.S. is actually running the show there. So this is a transcript of the captions. It's in, it was in French, but uh, the captions were in English, the subtitles, I should say. And then Lee Camp had a friend of his who speaks French, check the captions for accuracy. And so here it goes. You know, there was an appeal at the beginning of President Zelensky, who called for international volunteers with combat experience. And so I accompanied three Frenchmen, one of whom had been a soldier before and two who had fought together in Rojava against ISIS. So people with military experience. I spent several days with them. I had the surprise, and so did they, to discover that to be able to enter the Ukrainian army, well, it's the Americans who are in charge. 
We almost got arrested. We were confronted with an American who came to tell us, quote, here I am in charge, not the Ukrainians, but me, end quote. I'm talking of the training and enrollment of the international volunteers into the Ukrainian army. The guy even gave me his name. He is a veteran of the Iraq war. I did my verifications. It's a report that can be found in the Figaro magazine of this week. He took us for volunteers at the beginning, and I was extremely surprised by the violence of the words of this American. When he saw that we were journalists, he told us to leave, and then he was a little more, but it was... It still was, I'm in charge. Take the chips out of your cell phones, especially the international ones. We will give you other chips, etc. And then we sign a contract. Contracted until the end of the war. And who's in charge? It's the Americans. I saw it with my own eyes. It's not the U.S. Army officially, of course. It's quite significant. We know that yesterday they sent 100 new weapons, which are called switchblades. There are some sort of drones that are fired by mortar that can be remotely controlled. So new weapons. Officially, they have done it and they're going to do it. They have been there. That's the truth. I had the impression beyond the romantic aspect of this war. I thought I was with the international brigades and I found myself wow. facing the Pentagon. Or we should say that the reason that the military had those reporters take out the uh, the SIM cards in their phones is because Russia has been targeting those international SIM cards and they've actually liquidated, I don't know the number, but 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 many foreign mercenaries who've come to fight with Ukraine. Uh, with the Ukrainians, they've liquidated them by by identifying them and targeting at least a, a mass of those international SIM cards in one spot. And they've identified them as mercenaries. Right. So let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam in conversation with John Jeter, our media critic for this month's segment on On the Media. And John, before we move on to our culture items, I know that we want to talk about this horrific case of Patrick Leoya, shot in the back of the head by Grand Rapids police after a traffic stop. and. There's so much we can say about the media coverage, but before us, uh, I was speaking to uh, activist uh, Beverly John here in the D.C. suburb in Prince George's County about how these cases are showing so many of us that the police reforms that we that we demanded would happen after the murder of George Floyd have not happened. And very little of the coverage I see of these types of cases put them in any type of historical perspective. We are down to the same series of facts around whether the police officer will be even charged, even arrested, even named in this case. So I know that news of this case has reached far uh, internationally, yeah. even where you are. Yeah, I I have noticed it 
it has been very much in the international news. And I mean, from such remote locations as India, you know, news stations in India, Western Africa, South America. And they are, if not outraged by it, a lot of people, I think, uh, internationally see it as a very sort of clear cut symbol of two things. One, America's hypocrisy in preaching human rights to much of the rest of the world, right? That their lecturing of the rest of the world about abiding by human rights, they see that as as silly. I mean, they've always seen it as silly, right? Because, of course, the United States supports Israel. There's no bigger violator of human rights in the world today than Israel. They, you know, Saudi Arabia, they, the United States supports Saudi Arabia. And so, you know, this is not new necessarily. It's not surprising, but it seems like it's almost like the last nail on the call from like, okay, the, you know, the United States has jumped the shark. You can no longer talk about human rights because the thing is a bullet to the back of the head is the way that people would have been killed during the dirty war, La Guerra Sucia in Argentina, right? By the Gulag, by East Germany, right? During the Cold War and an apartheid South Africa. The bull to the back of the head is unambiguous to a lot of people throughout the world, right? It means that your government means you harm, right? The fix is in. You don't live in a democracy, right? This is a clear symbol to much of the rest of the world of this, right? This is how you, how you kill people when you want to send a message, right, that you won't win. You are a defeated people. And so it's a very powerful story abroad, even though it doesn't seem to be resonating much with the mainstream press, the idea of a Congolese immigrant, who, by the way, I think a lot of people speculate, was fearful of being arrested because he understands the reputation of the U.S. police. You know, as as fractured a country as Congo is, they don't often, at least not in modern day Congo, they don't often encounter police who will shoot you in the back of the head for a traffic violation, right? It's just not common, right? Uh, and so this is really a, a uh, an emblem for much of the world of where the United States is politically. Right. When you talked about the history of that type of what I call being killed execution style, right? Right, exactly. Yes, yes. Thank you. Yes. That's how it's normally described. And you don't hear that phrase used in this kind of coverage, right? Right. That's right. That's right. Great point. Yes. Great point. And, um, but I also think that, you know, I want to relate it to uh, back to the coverage of Bucha because many of these people were killed that way. You know, a lot of the bodies were found with their heads, hands tied behind their back, just the way this police officer was holding his hands behind his back and where perhaps he could have been handcuffed or he could have been bound in some kind of way to disable him and whatever. But instead, he was shot in the back of the head. And that brings me to our maybe it's a hard pivot to um, our last section when we want to talk about some other issues. And and maybe a good segue is to talk about a re-energized Covert Action magazine. We have uh, on this show uh, covered several stories that they have been including recently, including uh, a story kind of question, one of the stories questioning what happened in Bucha based on some of the video evidence, some of the pictures, some of the alternative information available that points to a different scenario other than the Russians committing a massacre on their way out of Bucha after being there for a month. And 
uh, related story is uh, I want to keep reminding people about the documentary Ukraine on Fire, which I hope that we can feature on the show. And related just this week, the Wimbledon, you know, very prestigious uh, tennis tournament announced that it would be banning all Russian and Belarusian players. And this follows earlier threats that require these players to denounce their own government or to denounce the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, what Russian citizen is going to do that? No, what what tennis player is going to do that? You know, denounce your own government and your your president of your country. Right. Uh, In order to play a tournament. And I couldn't help but think that in the 20 years of the U.S. illegal invasion and occupation of Afghanistan and and also Iraq, what U.S. sports figures were made to denounce George Bush or President Obama or or Trump. Right, right. right, You're going going way back. But but just in the last 20 years, how many U.S. sports figures playing on an international level like tennis, like soccer, like even at any Olympics were required to denounce the U.S. government for our killing of uh, more than a million and I keep saying two million. Well, if, you, uh, if, you, if you take it back to um, uh, for, sanctions, it would be two million, right? If you combine that with the war, yeah, exactly, right. So maybe, maybe that's the figure I have in my head because I, I know I have that figure from somewhere, but I, I never hear it mentioned. And so, if Wimbledon is going to have this policy, I just ask that it be applied to everyone, right? And since that's not done, this seems arbitrary. It makes the empire and it's all all of its vassal states yes, like the UK yes, seem very yes. desperate and 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 so self unaware or unaware of their own hypocrisy as we have uh, Ukrainians leapfrogging black and indigenous people at our southern border. We have black people fleeing Ukraine in detention camps in Poland. These are some of the stories that we've covered on this show. Right. Well, we have the border patrol here in this country. What do we call them? Border agents or whatever. Suddenly able to process all these Ukrainians. Biden has said he will admit up to 100,000 of them when they said they did not have the capacity to process black and indigenous people who have been waiting at the border for weeks, months and living in very horrific conditions on the street while the Ukrainians have been been given, you know, shelter indoors. Right. But not uh, to worry, Esther, because process. Kamala Harris has assured us that this is not, the United States is not a racist country. So at least we don't have to worry about that. <sighs> while she drinks her Passover wine from the <laughs> West Bank um, right. on stolen Palestinian land uh, from a stolen <laughs> Palestinian orchard. And Yay, that's Campbell. another story, of course. Uh, we could go on and on, but I was happy to hear uh, so many of the people being interviewed in progressive media, at least this this time around, uh, talking about the horrific attack on the Al-Aqsa Mosque during Ramadan that are mentioning that, no, these are not clashes as the corporate media continues to say, these are attacks on worshipers, on people praying. And I think starting on the reporting last year, a lot of the Palestinian activists were able to point out the 
horrific bias in the language in places like the New York Times, continuing to call these things clashes when no, they are attacks by armed soldiers on on unarmed people praying during Ramadan and intentional attacks on uh, protesters who are resisting the desecration of their second holiest site in Islam. So we want to continue to watch that story. We're coming up, we'll be coming up on the one year anniversary of all the incidents last year, but let's end on a, on some lighter notes if we can. I've been really struck by how many people, I think more so on the right, have been all abuzz about Elon Musk possibly buying Twitter and they're following this with bated breath. I've even heard one pretty far right commentator say, you know, he might let, you know, Trump back on Twitter. So I mean, I think you're more on Twitter than I am. I'm not a big Twitter person. No, I'm not. I'm not either. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah, we're, I guess we're, 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 like, yeah. we're old, <laughs> older than that. <laughs> We're older than that demographic, but, um, and you know, we're supposed to be on as journalists, but you know, you know, I'm doing the best I can. So anyway, just, what's your I take? When it, hear right? I don't understand how Elon Musk is, uh, the savior for the right. I think, I think they're right. I think he probably would let Trump back on Twitter. And I, I don't think that's, I think that's fairly neutral, right? It's neither good nor bad, but I don't understand the, the consternation, and particularly by the liberals who think he's going to, just the opposite, he's going to destroy Twitter in some way, right? It just, you know, well, well, well let me say this though. I do think, I do think it points to one thing, which is that Twitter and Facebook and really all of social media should be public utilities, right? Elon Musk shouldn't own it and Jeff Bezos shouldn't own it. The people should own it, right? Because the people, it's the people who use it, it's the people who need it, right? Particularly now we see our legacy media being, you know, really, really just gutted. So I don't really, I guess much like Twitter itself, I just don't quite get it. <laughs> okay. Well, finally, and it's, uh, you know, serious, but I guess it's kind of gallows humor. We have Chris Coons going on Face the Nation this week, uh, calling for, after being, you know, kind of asked repeatedly, basically saying that maybe U.S. troops need to go into Ukraine. So let's hear a little bit of that. But Democrat Chris Coons, an ally of the president, says it's time for him to reconsider sending in U.S. troops, something Mr. Biden has repeatedly said he won't do. I think the history of the 21st century turns on how fiercely Mm -hmm. we defend freedom in Ukraine and that Putin will only stop when we stop him. And so that was a piece that included Chris Coons talking about maybe only we can stop Putin. That came out on Sunday. And then after that, we saw your favorite person, Malcolm Nance, who is supposedly having some type of intelligence background. He's been a commentator. We've seen him as a talking head on MSNBC, really kind of like you, you know, (laughs) that's the the perfect description. So, uh, So, Yeah, yeah, I remember having to tell a copy editor that you was like white suburban and and ill was, you know, urban black. But I have to say you for for, I have to say you for Malcolm Nance. But anyway, he made the announcement that he was going to go fight in Ukraine. And then we saw these pictures of Malcolm Nance with his fatigues on and uh, assault rifle in in the Donbass. 61-year-old Malcolm Nance and his fatigues. 
All right. So I know you have some reaction to that. I, I, nothing but great humor. I, you know, go, go Malcolm. <laughs> right. I mean, if he's fool enough to go and fight the Russian army in Ukraine, uh, hey, God bless him. You know, I, hey, may, maybe maybe he'll go so we don't have to. <laughs> wow. OK, well, on that note, I think we're going to wrap up our on the media segment for this month. I've been joined by our media critic, John Jeter. John, so tell me, how can people read more of your work and find you when you're not on on the ground? I'm uh, at johnjeter.com, and you can also find my next book project, which I hope will be published later this summer, at Class War in America, all one word, dot com. All right. Well, we'll have to check that out. Thank you, John. Thank you, Esther. And that's it for today's show. A special thank you to my guests, John Jeter and Beverly John, for joining me today. And thank you to Michael Byfield for his production assistance. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital, on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, on all your podcast platforms, at On the Ground with Esther Ivarum, and on our website, onthegroundshow.org. You can also let us know you like the show on Twitter, patreon.com, and Facebook at On the Ground Show. And all those pages have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R underscore Averum, I-V-E-R-E-M. The music we played this hour included Scandalize My Name by Paul Robeson, Leroy and Lanisha by Kamasi Washington, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. And I know that the show is worth more than that to you. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, if, you know, it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way, please support. Go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And I would very much appreciate your support. And it would mean so much to us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway, if you reach the blog that way and you click on the donate now button or the, um, support donate button and you can see all ways to give.